Hello and welcome to Pod Emperor of Dune. I'm Elaine, a longtime sci-fi fantasy fan reading Frank Herbert's classic science fiction Dune Saga for the very first time. I'm joined by my co-host Alex, who is tackling his first reread. Join our chapter-by-chapter deep dive into the series. As I make wildly incorrect predictions, Alex tries not to give anything away, and together we learn to walk without rhythm. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Pod Emperor of Dune. I'm Alex here as always with Elaine. Hey, guys. Today, we're going to be continuing Hunters of Dune. So um, this is going to be sort of a combo because we're going to be wrapping up the book and we're also going to do our book review in this one episode. I don't think it's going to be a particularly long review portion just because we've, you know, been sort of talking about the book at a high level throughout the last couple episodes and continuing on to this one. So it's probably going to be more of like a summary level of what we usually go through with characters, plot lines, etc. Mm-hmm. So without further ado, why don't we dive right in? Okay. So, in previous episodes, we kind of broken it down into subsections by the time period of number of years since the escape from Chapter House, mm-hmm. um, but we only have one time period to cover in this episode because it is the longest final time period in the book. It makes up approximately the last third or so of the book, which is why it's all in this one episode. So, we'll still talk about our three or so different groups of characters, but it all is going to be in the same time period of 19 years after the escape of the No Ship from Chapter House. So, as usual, we'll start with our No Ship crew, who are still wandering through the galaxy or whatever. I'm still not quite sure, like, the size of the region of space that they're moving well, through. Well, they were in, like, a different universe, and then yeah. they jumped from universe to universe, and, like, it. I'm assuming that it's astronomical in size compared to what you'd see in, like, you know, like other sci-fi genres, like Star Trek, like basically takes place in the Milky Way galaxy, right? Like they don't really go beyond that. Yeah, so it's like, like it's different versions of the galaxy. So yeah, I am like very unclear about what the capabilities of a ship like this, the, the fold space jumping. Mm-hmm. Like I don't really know what the bounds of the old empire are, and how far beyond them the scattering went, or how far beyond them this particular no ship is going, or like where the machine home base world is. Mm-hmm. Because as we'll get to in this episode, we get like the final real confirmation of the fact that the enemy that everyone's been worried about is in fact machines. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so wherever they are out in the universe somewhere, Shiana is wondering if all that is happening now is still a part of humanity's golden path that Leto had envisioned. There's a weird sequence in which the Golas of Stilgar and Liet watch as a bunch of sandworms twist themselves up into a tower while Shiana dances on top of them as both children wish to understand how she controls the worms. This was a very odd sequence of events in the in the book. Mm-hmm. I didn't quite get it. Yeah. I, I guess maybe it, the idea is to illustrate that the worms are more cooperative than their original forms had been, maybe, mm-hmm. or at least they can be when Shiana is there to kind of like unite their purpose, but it was kind of an odd sequence of events anyway the no ship decides to make a jump to another planet with duncan and miles having worked together to select particular coordinates and by all appearances it's a promising location with habitable environments evidence of living civilization but comparatively primitive technology plenty of open space and so on so there's obviously some hope about the potential of this world Grimi hopes this could be a new Bene Gesserit homeworld and the rabbi hopes this could be a place for his people to settle if the native people, presumably people who had gone out from the scattering, are welcoming. While Duncan, at the very least, hopes they can resupply the ship, as he doesn't really believe they can settle anywhere, or they will eventually be found by the tachyon net. 
But in theory, Grimi and her crew and the rabbi and his faction could settle and Duncan and anyone else who wants to keep going could leave them there. Yep. So it's not like the whole group has to make the same decision necessarily. In any case, the ship decides to send a mission down to the planet, eventually settling on Shiana, Miles, the rabbi, and the goal of Thufir to investigate the civilization while other workers resupply the ship from an uninhabited area. They also end up bringing the futars as they become frantic when the ship arrives over this planet until Shiana learns from Herm that this planet is in fact the home of the Handlers and the Futars wish to be reunited with them, and she agrees to fulfill her promise to bring them home. So the mission lands and meet the mysterious Handlers, who all have strained bands of pigment across their eyes, kind of like a mask or like a raccoon face sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And things seem to go well. The Handlers profess their shared enmity with the Honored Matres, and the clearly happy Futars are reunited with the Handlers. No word on whether these handlers resemble those that had approached Dortugela on Bazel. Because remember that happened in the previous book? Yeah. But I don't think we got really a description of them as looking any different than a normal person, in my recollection. Yeah, I don't entirely remember. I mean, it was all secondhand, I yeah. think. But it was, uh, or, or at least it was someone reporting on an experience rather than us mm -hmm. seeing it take place ourselves. But Exactly. It, it, it was just something I thought about of like, oh, I wonder if this was also true of that group or not. In any case, the handlers welcome the Ithaca delegation and tell what they know of their history, that their race had spread to numerous nearby worlds and formed a sort of brotherhood of planets until they were attacked by the destructive and insatiable honored matres, and they had developed the futars in response to hunt them. Back in those days, they had apparently had Tlaxu among them, who would help them to genetically engineer their offspring to generate the futars. But the Talaxu had apparently long since died out since they didn't breed the way normal people did. The handlers show Shiana and co a cage of captured honored matres, conveniently present already, <laughs> who will be turned out the next day for the futars to hunt in a public spectacle. Back on the no-ship, Duncan feels at ease given the positive message he's received from the planet's surface, and he goes to try to assuage his still-powerful mourning of Marbella by going and sniffing a bunch of her stuff that he's kept in a nullentropy bin or whatever. <laughs> he then notices that some of her hair is in fact stuck to the clothes, and wrestles with the idea of asking Sightail to make a gola of her so that they can be reunited, which would be weird given the age differential for sure. Because by now he's... It's been 19 years since he left Chapter House, and he was like 16 to 20 by that time. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Do the math, I guess. Yeah, he'd be like <laughs> close to 40 if this new Marbella was born and she'd be a baby. So that would be, that would be pretty weird. I don't like this idea at all. And I don't really feel like he wrestles with the age differential. Like he doesn't really seem to think about it. He's just like, oh, this will solve my problem. I'll have a new Marbella. Anyway, back down on the planet's surface, we proceed to the hunt. Shiana and Miles are separated from Thufir and the rabbi, placed on separate platforms to observe the hunt from above. I think a couple miles apart. Looking down, Miles notes that the forest isn't natural and had in fact been planted to give the appearance of randomness, and he wonders who had originally planted it and why. And he begins to become concerned about the true allegiance of the handlers. The fact that their common enemy is the honored matres might in fact mean that they're agents of the outside enemy, which makes sense just because you both have the same enemy doesn't mean that you are friends. <laughs> it might make you temporary allies, but the handlers might ultimately 
have an allegiance to a different enemy. Mm-hmm. From the other platform, the rabbi struggles with watching the bloodthirstiness of the hunt. While below, an honored matre manages to temporarily fight back against the futars, it even kills one of the two handlers guarding the base of their observation tower. Thufir and the rabbi go down to try to help, but they discover that the two handlers were actually face dancers, and they take off running with the surviving handler in pursuit. So basically, when the handler down at the base of the tower is killed, they like revert back to their face dancer form, and so it becomes pretty clear that, oh, hmm, some or all of the handlers are face dancers. And I think that's left ambiguous. Mm-hmm. It's not quite clear if there is a race of handlers that are their own thing, and some of them have been replaced by face dancers, like key positions meant to capture the people from the no-ship, or whether the whole race is just face dancers and they've put on this handler appearance. I would assume maybe the latter, just because the only evidence we have of them existing at all is as face dancers, right? At this point. Potentially, except for that contingent mentioned in the previous book. Mm-hmm. Which could have been face dancers. It could have been. We really we really just don't know. And could I also just... just be a retcon. Yeah, that's true. Um, it's just a little bit unclear, because we later learn that this is a deliberate attempt to capture the people on the no-ship, so it could mm-hmm. be that, you know, Marty and Daniel communicated with their face dancer agents on this planet, and were like, you need to get yourselves in place. We just really don't know. I don't really have a thought about which is more likely. So... One half of the planet contingent is running for their lives. Back at the other platform, Shiana and Miles come down after the last mantra has been killed, and Shiana congratulates Herm on his success in the hunt. But the handlers subtly begin to encircle them, as their leader indicates that he wishes to visit the no-ship. Shiana and Miles try to stall, but then they preemptively attack, unexpectedly aided by Herm, who kills the chief handler while snarling Shiana's name, revealing him to be a face dancer too. So Shiana and Miles both realize that the handlers had, in fact, planned to kill and replace them aboard the Ithaca to capture it. So they're going to replace the four of them and kind of infiltrate the no-ship from inside. And ultimately, it takes Herm and later the other Ithaca Futar sacrificing themselves and Miles using his super speed to give them a chance to escape. So Shiana and Miles make it to their lighter in order to get back up to the no-ship. And somehow, Thufir and the rabbi make it to the lighter just in time. And it almost kind of seems like the way it's written that Thufir is going to sacrifice himself to save the rabbi, but ultimately they both make it onto the lighter and they're fine. Mm -hmm. And uh, so none of them die and they all get on the lighter and take off, but they are pursued by the handler's own ships. And the planet had been kind of, I guess, made to appear more primitive than it was. So when they initially scanned the planet, they were like, oh, they definitely don't have like spacefaring capabilities or if they do they're very minimal but it turns out they had like a whole complement of battle ready ships so yep <laughs> they are pursued by technologically advanced handler ships back on the no ship duncan can't stop thinking about making a gola of marbella so despite knowing that's a bad idea he goes to talk to Saitail about it who tells him that it's possible although he doesn't think it's a good idea at all and i'm kind of interested to know why but before their discussion gets any further Alarms go off as Shiana tries to reach Duncan, who should have been at the navigation controls, but is not, because he's too busy sniffing Rebella's old stuff <laughs> and fantasizing <laughs> about making a new baby version of her, which is just weird. It's weird. So bizarre <laughs> in so many ways. Yes. Like, I get that he has, you know, this this bond that has not really ever fully been broken, and, and that's what's driving this behavior, but it's really weird to read about. Yeah. 
That's one way of putting it. <laughs> so anyway, I think this sends Duncan sprinting back off to his post. And ultimately, it is difficult, but the no-ship is able to decloak long enough for Miles to land the lighter in the docking bay. However, several handler ships manage to puncture the no-ship in various locations. So they kind of just, like, kamikaze crash their ships into various parts of the Ithaca. Mm-hmm. and successfully, like, break into the hull. At this point, the tachyon net begins to form around them, since they've decloaked, and obviously the handler planet has alerted the enemy to the no-ship's location. But Duncan somehow manages to math his way out of the net, I guess, by calculating a route to allow them to fold space jump away. So I don't really have a good explanation for how any of this works, like how the tachyon net works, how Duncan is able to escape it. Because I think last time he, like, brute force escaped it, and this time he, like, calculates a way out of it. I just don't get it. It's just, like, space magic. Just yeah, works. it's just, it's very poorly explained in an annoying kind of way. Yeah, I think this is, like, an example of something where I think Frank Herbert would try to sort of explain some of this stuff, and maybe it wouldn't totally make sense but at least there was, like, an effort there. And here it's just kind of like, oh, space magic, it works, believe it, and then... Yeah, I don't know. I just... I guess considering that the tachyon net is such a recurring plot element, I just wish I had a better grasp of what it was and how it worked. Yeah. You know, if it was, like, a one-off thing that never comes up again, whatever. But mm-hmm. it just... It's a driving plot point for the whole Ithaca thing and that this net keeps, like, forming around them and they keep having to escape from it, and I just don't really get what it is exactly what it is capable of doing can it just capture them can it like drag them back to where marty and daniel are like i don't actually know what the net can do or like how it works or anything like that so how they escape it is just like a uh, i guess they did it yeah it just works yeah basically regardless they do manage to escape the net and fold space jump away from this planet on the ship, they find a bunch of dead face dancers who had crashed on various decks, but they can't be certain that any live ones didn't escape to infiltrate the ship elsewhere, which is not a great situation to be in, because now they have an unknown number of potentially live face dancers on the ship who could kill and replace people at pretty much any time. So that's definitely not going to lead to any crazy paranoia down the line. What could possibly go wrong? Right. So after they're all back, Shiana, Duncan, and Miles debrief, with Miles finally revealing his super speed and his no-ship-seeing abilities to the others, and defending himself against Shiana's protestations that he put them in danger by not revealing his talents, by pointing out that the Bene Gesserit don't take kindly to men with extraordinary abilities. Unless, of course, they're breeding a new Kvisa Chatterak, in which case, have at it, I guess. Duncan agonizes over his continued addiction to Marbella, and how it is increasingly putting the ship in danger by distracting him, and Shiana offers to help him break it. Duncan, astonishingly stupidly, is like, huh, I wonder what she possibly could mean by this, and is somehow surprised when she shows up to fuck him later that night. (laughs) It's like, what the hell did you think, dude? (laughs) (laughs) Like, uh, just bizarrely naive for a, as we just discussed, nearly 40-year-old man. (laughs) 40-year-old mentat. Yes. With tons of Gola memories of previous lifetimes. Yes, and it's just like, hmm, I wonder what Shiana could mean about breaking this sexual bond I have to Marbella. They argue about whether they should proceed, but ultimately get to banging and using their imprinting abilities against each other, 
And ultimately, it seems to work, fortunately, without bonding the two of them together, but just breaking the bond with Marbella somehow. I, I don't know. Again, like, none of this stuff makes any sense. Yeah. To be fair, it didn't make a ton of sense in the previous books either, so I'm not, yeah. going, to, I'm not going to lay this at Brian Herbert's feet. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I was just going to say that. Like, I think this is something that... Is it bizarre? Yes. Is it Frank Herbert bizarre? Probably yes. yes. Like, it's it's kind of, like, at a similar level to that. Like, you could easily see Frank Herbert doing something like this, Yeah, right? this didn't seem out of place. Mm-hmm. But I, I just continue to think that this weird, like, sexual imprinting bonding thing is odd and doesn't make a ton of sense. Although, the thing is, like, weird sex stuff. That was kind of Frank's thing mm-hmm. in the last couple books of his, so... Yeah. <laughs> Anything related to that, it wouldn't be too surprising if Frank Herbert also did something kind of like that. So, mm-hmm. All right, so we then check in with Marty and Daniel, who are standing on what appears to be a dock and looking out over a fleet of Greek triremes that Marty has apparently summoned into being to Daniel's annoyance. But they're not... <laughs> Imagine, like, I'm going to piss you off by summoning <laughs> some ancient ships. <laughs> yeah, it seems like Daniel thinks it's a waste of energy or whatever, because they're not actually triremes. They're just, like, a symbolic representation of the fleet of spaceships that they're actually launching. As despite the loss of the no-ship, an impatient Daniel wants to move ahead with their plans anyway, dealing with the inhabited planet in the scattering and the old empire, while Krasilek, or Kralizek, I keep screwing up which one it is, approaches, and believing that he'll have the needed Kvizach Haderach by the time he needs him anyway. There's some confusing dialogue about how Marty doesn't want to destroy all humans, but to perfect them which Daniel thinks is impossible, but I don't know what this means in context. Like, what does it mean to perfect humans? What doesn't Marty like about humans? What is Marty's problem with humans? Why does Daniel want to exterminate all humans? Yeah, some elaboration would be kind of nice. I don't really understand their motivations, but whatever. Ultimately, they launch the fleet, both the real and the symbolic fleet. Although Daniel warns Marty that once the real fighting begins, he won't allow her to waste her energy on illusions like those of the ship's. She basically rolls her eyes, but says if he keeps bugging her about wasting energy, they can just go back to their original forms, dissolving their illusory surroundings and revealing them to be in the middle of the futuristic city that we had seen on the horizon previously, where apparently they had been living for 15,000 years. All right, back to the no-ship. Paul and Cheney break into storage to steal some spice, with Paul planning to try to forcibly recover his memories so that he can help the crew of the Ithaca. He's feeling a bit useless like oh i've been bred to be this asset to the ithaca and everyone aboard and fighting this enemy but i'm still a child and i can't actually do anything so he wants to recover his memories and kind of skip ahead to being the useful person that he wants to be yep so he takes a bunch of spice and sees flashes of memories but not enough and when he tries to push harder he has what seems to be a vision of himself lying on the floor and bleeding out from a knife wound but he can't identify it as being from his own previous life. And it feels somehow fuzzy, and he wonders if it's actually a vision of his own future, wondering how he might prevent it. Confusingly, in this vision, he sees a second evil-looking version of himself standing over him with a knife and gloating over the dying Paul. Then he is woken, revived by a souk doctor, confessing to an angry Shiana that he didn't recover his memories, but he thinks that he had a prescient vision. So, of course, from our perspective, since we know there is a second Paul Gola being made, Paolo... We can assume that that's what this vision is about. But I think there is some tension at this point about which Paul is being stabbed and which is doing the stabbing, although maybe not that much tension because I feel like they kind of make 
it clear that the like gloating evil looking Paul is probably Paolo. Yeah. So certainly the fact that the new Paul is having prescient visions is concerning to Shiana and anyone who's worried about what they've created. But they, on the other hand, if they wanted to make a new piece of Tatterack, that's kind of part of the package deal, right? So mm-hmm. interesting. It's not clear why this was not sufficient to recover his memories, but whatever. As they proceed, Duncan watches the goal of the children, whom Garimi has begun to deem ready for memory recovery attempts. He sees Shiana and tells her that they need to keep some space, not wishing to be bonded again. So I guess they didn't like formally bond, but they still keep wanting to bang each other. And so he's like, no, we can't. And whatever. They just have a kind of weird sexual tension, I guess. After this encounter, he launches Marbella's remaining belongings off the ship, cured of his bond, allegedly, but still tempted by the possibility of seeing some version of her again. So he's like, nope, better yeet all her leftover hair off the ship. (laughs) So I don't succumb to temptation and make a baby of my former lover. Which is a bizarre sentence in a number of contexts. Then the last thing we get from the outside the old empire perspective is we go back to see Marty and Daniel as the fleet launches. They are commanding from the central machine world. Daniel has now dropped his old man disguise, which was apparently just a hologram or a VR sim or something of a distributed computer program. As when he speaks, he does so from all buildings and all screens everywhere, which certainly seems annoying. Like if every time you want to talk to this guy, just the whole city shouts at you. (laughs) (laughs) Like, my God, (laughs) cool it. (laughs) So it doesn't seem like he was in a body at all. This is always just a hologram type construct. We learn that the city is called Synchrony. Marty then drops her own disguise, appearing to instead be a freestanding robot named Erasmus presumably humanoid, as he, insofar as a robot has a gender, is inexplicably wearing a plush robe, because that's a normal thing for a robot to do. (laughs) Daniel's real name, it turns out, is Omnius, apparently an Evermind, which just seems to be a super complex AI computer thing, Mm -hmm. program, a sentient computer program. Erasmus had apparently constrained Omnius into the form of Daniel to try to make him better understand humans and not be so focused on grand plans such as eliminating all of humanity. But once the Matres had attacked the machines, this apparently became less successful. I don't know. None of this makes any sense to me. Yeah. Like, I don't really know why Omnius wants to do X or why Erasmus is working sort of against him or how he forced him to take on the form of Daniel or any of this stuff, so... I don't know. All very confusing. Why have they spent the last, like, 15,000 years just pretending to be, like, an old gardening couple? Maybe Mm -hmm. it wasn't the last 15,000 years, but, like, why were they doing that at all? To make Daniel understand humans better by making him garden? I I don't know. Like, this... We talked about this before, like, things that are just done for the reader, right? This is just another example of, like, you had them, like doing their own thing off in their own little bubble and they were like incognito why it's just the two of you <laughs> it just yeah that's it thing. doesn't serve a purpose i'm not clear that there's any other sentient machine mm-hmm. like it just seems like it's these two and all the other machines are just like normal robots who are obeying the bidding of these two yeah so it's not like there's this whole like thriving machine civilization happening it's just like these two so like <laughs> i don't know <laughs> It's strange. This is one of many reasons I don't like this reveal of who these people turn out to be. We learn that a probe had apparently been sent out by a copy of Omnius before the Butlerian Jihad had ended. This probe had landed on this planet and then had later received a different copy of Omnius. (laughs) 
which also contained a copy of Erasmus, <laughs> sent out in an act of desperation before the final defeat of the machines, which is how these allegedly ancient machines from Old Earth apparently survived until now. Because, as it turns out, these are not just a new variety of thinking machines that had sprung up from some other civilization or, or whatever. But these are specifically the two thinking machines that were like the primary enemies in the Valerian Jihad, who had somehow made it out to this planet through this probe rigmarole. We get the sense that Omnius is critical of and bored by humans while Erasmus is fascinated by them. We also get a little more detail on how some Tlaxu master from the old empire had sent out a new type of face dancer into the universe to try to colonize or something. And then these new face dancers had been captured by Omnius and co-opted and bred by Erasmus for their own purposes, which is why the face dancers are aligned with the machines rather than having been created by the lost Tlaxu, which is what I had obviously originally assumed. Also, apparently Erasmus has a body made of something called flow metal, which can perform a similar appearance-altering function as face dancer biology, so he can appear as other things. Mm -hmm. So I think his taking on the form of Marty is more genuine than Omni is just projecting this old man form of Daniel. Erasmus is also able to absorb the lives and experience of the face dancers, which doesn't entirely make sense, but then again, the face dancer mechanics themselves don't entirely make sense, so whatever. And absorbing these personalities has somewhat warped Erasmus's sense of self, although what the consequences of that are are not clear to me. So Erasmus strides through the city, which is apparently all just an extension of Omnius, so again, can't really tell if there are any other intelligent machines or literally just these two. Erasmus notes that they still need the Kvisa Tatarak to be assured of success, but Omnia seems confident that even if they don't find him, they'll be successful. So he's a little bit confident of like, eh, it'd be great to have him, but like, I think we can do it even without him. And uh, yeah, so that is all we get from those two. And that is essentially the end of that portion of the book. So mm -hmm. let us jump back to the old empire and see what Marbella is up to during this time period. All right, so... We're going to start off not actually with Marbella herself just yet, but instead with her two top lieutenants who were banished to the desert where Doria had killed Belanda, but had been forced to absorb her memories, basically, mm -hmm. before she died. And so now she's stuck with Belanda just constantly taunting her inside her head. So Doria is perpetually unhappy with this scenario, obviously. And it's somehow implied that Belanda's fatness is psychologically contagious, which is ludicrous. But Doria trains and exercises and manages her metabolism, and yet still gets fat, which she is displeased about, and doesn't make any in-universe sense, other than Belanda is somehow doing this to punish her, or it's happening simply because Belanda in her head, which yikes on about 15 different levels. I did not like that subplot. So yeah, this did not, did not like that. That was a, a weird decision. Mm. However... Not outside of what I would expect Frank Herbert to do. So yep, that seems in keeping with his. Let's point out at every opportunity how fat Belanda is. Even in a body that's not her own. In any case, the spice operations are proceeding well enough, despite Belanda constantly taunting Doria. Until Doria and the sister she is with out in the desert are eaten by a pack of large sandworms, apparently working together as a hunting pack, which isn't typical sandworm behavior. As she dies, Belanda manages to criticize her one last time for managing to get her killed twice. So I did not love this because I thought this was a potentially interesting plot development to have Doria have to take Belanda into her head. And then the next time we see them, they just immediately die. Mm -hmm. 
So that seems like it just went nowhere for no real reason. Yeah, a lot of setup for nothing. Yeah, it's like this long thread throughout the book of Marbella dealing with her two top lieutenants, one from the Honored Matres and one from the Bene Gesserit side, hating each other, and she forces them to work together and all of this stuff, and then it just ends here with first Belanda getting killed, and then Dore being killed the next time we see them, so I don't know. It wasn't that interesting of a resolution to the plot. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It might as well not have happened. Like, I don't think it functionally made any difference that Doria took Belanda into her head. Like, if Belanda had just been killed and then Doria got killed on her own later, it would have had the same net effect. Like, Marbella doesn't learn anything from this. It just happens. Yeah, it just takes up space in the book for yeah. no real payoff. It's, like, a really pointless subplot, given the way that it ends. Um, the only thing it really managed to do is, I guess, a separate demonstration that the sandworms work together now, even outside of Shiana's influence. Um, so whatever, I don't know. Anyway, off of Chapter House, in return for providing Uxtel's services in reviving a gola of Chalaxi Masters to figure out how to make spice, Edric cooperates with the Honored Matres to launch an attack on Rechase, which has the added bonus of hurting Marbella, whom Edric hates for restricting the spice the Navigators need, so he's not exactly upset that he's going to have to strike a blow against the Bene Gesserit. He basically brings Helica's forces to Rechase on a Highliner, and they destroy the planet with no warning or time for evacuation, using the last few obliterators from Slylax, thus decimating the weapons that Marbella has been preparing for the fight against the outside enemy. A livid Marbella plans to attack Slylax in retaliation for crippling humanity's defenses, as well as wasting astronomical amounts of the New Sisterhood's finances, which she had sunk into the weapons development armor chase. Marbella sends Janus and several Valkyries to infiltrate Tylax while posing as Honored Matre in order to sabotage from within, and send back critical tactical information while Marbella will launch an assault on Tylax from the outside in three weeks. So Marbella, unaware of his involvement, summons Edric to Chapter House to make him a proposal, and she's annoyed that he doesn't seem as eager to please as she'd expected. We know, of course, that he is working and getting an alternate source of spice, and so he hopes to be less dependent on the Sisterhood. He also reveals to her that the guild has been cooperating with Ix to develop navigation machines, and it may not be as reliant on spice in the future, and also tells her that his own faction has been seeking an alternate source of spice so as not to become obsolete. However, despite his hopes for Uxal and Tilwith, when Marbella offers him spice right now, instead of having to wait for maybe this other plan to pan out, he agrees to transport her troops to Tlilax on a standard highliner and on one with a no-field. I guess they don't all have no fields, which I found kind of surprising. In the meantime, despite her and the other daughter Matres never before having success looking into their other memories to learn of their origins, Marbella apparently decides to just brute force it through massive doses of spice. There's also some side note about the Kvisach mother, Anarol Carino, going insane that is a reference that does not land in the slightest for me, <laughs> because I don't know what any of that means. Yeah. <laughs> nope. <laughs> And so Marbella is determined to do this to prepare herself for the assault on Tlylax. She goes out into the desert and consumes a fuck ton of spice, which does somehow allow her to access those memories which had previously been hidden. So I guess she could have done it all along and just didn't take enough spice. I don't know. I found this really annoying that mm. she just is like, well, this time's the time. I'll do it for sure. And it just works. I don't know. Convenient. Yeah, I didn't really love that. It's like, hmm, well, I kind of would have assumed maybe the Benny Jester would have wanted you to try this before, instead of you just being so determined that it happens. 
But basically, from her memory, what happens is in the scattering, some rogue Bene Gesserit had teamed up with some wild Reverend Mothers and fish beakers, but in their escape, they had come upon some isolated Tlaxu planets and discovered the 10,000-year secret of the axolotl tanks. Enraged, they had slaughtered the Tlaxu and rescued the tanks, reviving those that they could from their comas. Many of them died, but some of them were able to recover from their tankification, I guess. And these former Tlaxu women had sworn vengeance for the generation of torment their kind had been put through. Without access to spice or other memory, the Honored Matres had become their own militaristic society, bent on being the ones to control men, never the other way around again, demanding to be known and revered, rather than hidden away and reviled for their maternity, hence Honored Matres. It doesn't really explain why they became quite so amoral, or why they couldn't pass on information between generations in a normal way, even without other memory. Like, you know, many civilizations of humanity just had, like, oral tradition and kept stuff alive for a while. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you don't need mystical other memory to be able to pass on your people's history. But aside from this kind of hand-wavy stuff about why they don't know their own history, it's a reasonably good origin. It is a bit confusing that they appear to have some kind of ancestral hatred of the Tlaxu, but they don't remember why. So I think I really like the general idea of where the origins came from, and that they are in part driven by their history as former enslaved axolotl tanks of the Salaxu. But I think there's kind of a disconnect between that start and where they ended up, mm -hmm. of explaining why they became so like cartoonishly evil. And also why they don't remember anything about their past, but still hate the Slaxu, even though they don't seem to have any knowledge of their past as exile tanks or where they came from. So mixed feelings. I feel like it was a good idea, but I think there was some dot connecting that was not done. That's also kind of a retcon though, right? Because weren't they originally in Chapter House found to have been Fish Speaker, Benny Jesserit combos? Well, they are. They still are. There's just this third part of the mix that explains their naming as honored matres and their desire to rule over men. Yeah, but I'm, I'm just saying, like, this other element that's thrown in here is, like, it's sort of an addition retcon, right? Well, but, to I, this... but I don't think anyone actually knew. It was just suspicions of they were probably from Fish Beakers and Benny Jesserit. Yeah, but I no guess one, that's no one actually fair. knew. The whole point was that Marbella couldn't see far back enough into her memories to see their origins. Mm -hmm. I don't, this I don't consider a retcon because it was never explicitly made clear. Like, the Honored Matres clearly don't know. Marbella didn't know. It was just kind of, like, lost in their history, and mm -hmm. no one really knew how they started. It was it was assumed that, like, oh, Reverend Mother's Honored Matres, Benny Jessard history there. It turned out that that's not the reason they're called that. Yeah. At least not entirely. But it just, it seems like the speculation from Odrade and Terraza and whoever else that they were partly descended from Bene Gesserit and Fish Speakers was correct. It's just they didn't know the secret of the axolotl tanks and certainly didn't consider that was part of their lineage. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know. I don't hate that reveal. I think it's actually kind of cool. I think it would have been more interesting if it was just, like, an acknowledged part of the Honor Matre's history. Like, even if the other people, if they don't talk about it with outsiders, I, I, I think it would have been interesting if it was in the part of their own internal motivations of, like, they come back to the old empire fleeing the machines and they encounter the Tlaxu and are like, we must exterminate them. Yeah, I, I think it's just kind of implied that it's, like, genetic motivation. Which, 
is not as yeah. compelling as like real motivation. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. Like, I, I think that this was a cool idea, but I think it could have been executed a lot more interestingly. Yeah, agreed. Anyway, despite the fact that she goes through this in order to, I don't know, prepare for the assault on Slylax, Morella's new understanding does not actually change her plans in any way. And so she proceeds with the attack as she had initially planned. She and her troops leave from the normal Highliner, piloted by Edric himself for unclear reasons, in a show of force meant to distract while Janus and her undercover Valkyries sabotage the Matres. Marbella contacts Helica and arranges a meeting, which she assumes Helica will treat as a trap, but it is in fact all of Marbella's own trap. As Marbella prepares to land, the Valkyries blow up a bunch of buildings and ships as her own escort ships launch an all-out attack on the disoriented Matres, willing to destroy what remains of Vandalong in the process. Which definitely sucks for the lower class Talaxu who are still left living here, which is not really yeah. reckoned with in any way. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. Like, I know the Matres are in charge, but they're still just, like, low caste Talaxu being subjugated by yet a new set of masters who have done nothing to warrant the Bene Gesserit's ire. Marbell <laughs> mm. herself goes to confront Helica while the extra troops who are emerging from the hidden no-ship Highliner uh, continue to attack the city. It's a tough fight, but Rebella ultimately does kill Helica, pulling a palm maneuver from the original Dune and kicking up through her ribcage to crush her heart. Unexpectedly, Helica's corpse then transforms to reveal her as a face dancer, which basically explains why all of her actions had ultimately had the effect of weakening humanity and the new sisterhood against a future incursion by the enemy. So, all of this stuff about conspiring with Crone and riling up all the honored matres to fight against the new sisterhood rather than joining all kind of serves the ultimate purpose of working against the humanity left in the old empire. Mm -hmm. The remaining honored matres are horrified at this discovery, clearly having been unaware of who their leader was. So it's not that all of the honored matres have been replaced, but the face dancers have tactically taken out at least some of the leadership and assumed control to kind of guide the honored matres in whatever direction is most useful to them. We then get a brief check-in from the Oracle of Time, who can apparently trace the Tachyon net back to its source, although she won't do so until ready for a confrontation. But she still can't find the no-ship, which she also believes to have a Kvisa Tatarak on board, apparently the most powerful one of all, a super Kvisa Tatarak, I, I guess. According to prophecies, apparently the collective prophecies of the latent impressions in all of humanity about the end times. So, I don't know. This doesn't make much sense here. Well, the whole concept of latent prescience isn't new, right? Like, the Dune Tarot was kind of based around that, right? Around, like, sort of clouding prescience through everyone's, like, attempts to, like, figure out, you know, their future, essentially. Yeah, it just it just seems like they're trying to say here that, like, all of the prophecies ever made by anyone in humanity throughout history are all true and if you look at them as a collective they paint a picture of the end times or something yeah but there isn't like any further explanation of yeah and like certainly like no one prophesying about ragnarok is talking about a kvisa chatterack right yeah yeah i don't know i don't i just don't get how it's all just very hand wavy of like mm -hmm. all prophecies late impressions blah 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 this points to x if, if you take that like net of all prophecies they're going to contradict each other yeah. Like, there's no way they're not. So it's just, you can't really hand wave that and say, like, this is just how it is without explaining yourself. Yeah, like, there's obviously some commonalities in terms of, like, 
the Apocalypse and Revelation and Ragnarok and Kralizek. Mm -hmm. You can say they're whatever. all like based on similar themes that tie to some reality, but like monomyths and stuff. Yeah, but... yeah, but you can't like I don't know. It's just not. It's kind of like done in a ham-fisted way here that just doesn't. Yeah. Click. And there's like these two perspectives. The Oracle is saying like, oh, all this latent prescience of humanity, and I can use that to predict that there's going to be the Kvisa Tatarak on board the no ship and on the other hand you have the machines and the Erasmus is like through prophecies and calculations and predictions I also come to this prediction like mm -hmm. I don't know I I don't get it, it doesn't make a ton of sense to be fair I've never thought that the prescience in these books has ever been explained particularly well mm -hmm. so not a new problem anyway back on chapter house Mirabella recalls exactly how the honored matres had provoked the enemy a matre named Lenice had gone out to conquer new territory, encountering the edges of a growing machine empire, which had begun from the remnants of the Butlerian Jihad. Lenice and her people had found a manufacturing outpost inhabited by thinking machines, but had not known or cared where it came from, concerned only with destroying it and stealing weapons from it before returning to try to take more power back home. The machines had retaliated with extreme force, hunting down any inhabited planet of the scattering, and using plagues to kill all human life as the Matres conquered and fled inwards, leading the machines back to the old empire. Mirabella and her advisors look at the known damage done to the galaxy by the Matres and by the enemy, and are horrified at the scale, knowing that the enemy is even now inexorably hunting them. So, I do kind of like this, that the Matres are so, like, disconnected from history, not only their own, but even of, like, the old empire and the Butlerian Jihad, and they're so focused on, on conquest and their own internal power struggles that this one honored matre in her hubris like essentially pokes the bear and brings down the wrath of this vast unknown power against all of the rest of humanity. I think that's kind of an interesting idea. Mm -hmm. So I don't I don't dislike this entirely. Although I do think it's a little bit weird that like they wouldn't question like, huh, thinking machines. I would think that that bit of information wouldn't have been lost, but I guess it was. I don't know. I'm not, I guess I'm not quite clear, like, how much the Matres writ large know or remember about the old empire. Like, if they've lost their own history and origins, like, what do they know? Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, I kind of like this interesting thing of, like, this one honored Matre fucked up everything. Like, maybe the machines would have collected more power and eventually launched an attack anyway, but it kind of seemed like they were just doing their own thing until they were attacked. And once that happened, they were like, yeah, fuck this. Humanity's got to die. <laughs> kind of an interesting idea mm -hmm. that like this one woman brought down the wrath of the enemy against the entire existence of humanity because they were so focused on their own glory and power. That's the last thing we're going to see about Rebella and her people. So now we will hop over and see what Crone and Uxal have been doing during this period. Alright, so Uxal continues raising the Tilwith Golas, who have undergone rapid educational impression and thus were able to speak within months. They're all highly intelligent, but speak little to each other, and even then not much, with Uxal wondering if they are perhaps telepathic, which isn't really elaborated on, so we don't know if that's true. At one point, they cooperate to pretend one of them is injured in order to attack Uxal, although they are still too small to do much damage. A year later, Uxal and Ingva attempt to awaken their memories, ready to just kill them all and try again with the next batch, who are only six months behind. So they've just been churning out Tilwith Golas, considering them disposable because they only need one to remember. But the existing eight are brought to the chamber with the brain-dead Master Golas, where initially they are just intimidated and threatened, 
as if they could just snap their fingers and bring back their memories if under enough stress, which obviously doesn't work. Helica comes in with Edric and starts ordering them to be killed one by one to basically traumatize the others into remembering. Ultimately, it takes all seven others being killed in quite brutal fashion and Helica herself holding a knife to his head, but Tilwith Golan number one gets back at least some of his memories and starts babbling information to prove it. Although he becomes aware that whole chunks are missing, either due to the accelerated growth or some kind of security protocols built in. He tells this to Ukstal, who threatens that he'd better come up with something or they'll both be dead. Over on Caladan, Vladimir still hasn't been awoken to his memories despite years of torture, which the Gola enjoys, and his masochistic impulses, combined with his eagerness to get his memories back, make the process entirely ineffective. It is kind of funny that Crone's just been torturing him for years, just for no reason. But ultimately, Crone finally comes up with another method, which is to use a sensory deprivation chamber to basically torture Vladimir with boredom which is apparently something that was used by old Talaxu to make twisted mentats like Peter DeVries. It is successful, and he recovers his memories, which apparently include being cursed to be fat by Mohayim. That was not just, like, a part of his normal state of being. I always assumed it was due to the fact that it was not a natural thing that happened, but was something done to him by the Bendy Gesserit, which is apparently a thing they can do. Yeah, this is another one of those, it's like an addition retcon, which like, I, I, I think the whole point originally was just that he's just kind of like a, you know, he's kind of just gluttonous, mm-hmm. not not just with eating, but like he just like with likes everything. to overindulge, he's just like obsessed with like pleasure and, you know, whether that's eating or sex or like whatever, like it's just like a... And I mean, that's also, I think, somewhat explicitly carried over into... Children of Dune, because when he starts kind of possessing Aaliyah, she starts overindulging and I think noticeably gaining weight as well, which, you know, not necessarily always a direct correlation there, but like, yeah, I think it was was meant to be just a consequence of overindulgence. Yeah. And not this like mystical curse by Mohayim. I think this is like one of those things that like, it gets added in here and if you like really focused on the subject matter and understood like why he was the way he was you probably wouldn't have added this in yeah like it it just it feels like i don't know it it just feels like a low quality thing to add in here about a character that we already had some established canon around yeah to tweak and like you don't have to explain every little backstory that character yeah i don't know like i think this is a trap prequels sometimes fall into where they're like, hey, this is where this name came from, or this is where this thing came from, and, like, sometimes it's interesting, and sometimes it's just a little too much. So, anyway. I, I mean, really it, it's honestly, like... for why he's fat. Yeah, it's honestly, like, it's... I wouldn't even really call it, like, a prequel trap. It's more like a fan fiction trap, you know? Well, I, I just mean, like, a, some prequels suffer from this, because there's the temptation of, like, hey, this thing you liked in the original, well, we're going back before that, and we'll tell you every little tiny detail about how it happened that way. Yeah. It can happen even in rel- things that I consider of better quality than this. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It just, it, it feels to me like if somebody was going to randomly write a book about, like, some Star Wars character who showed up in a cantina once and then, like, <laughs> gave them a ton of backstory. Like, I don't know. It just, it, it feels like that type of thing where you just kind of, you layer things onto a character that they don't necessarily need. I know mm-hmm. the Baron wasn't, like, a side character, but... You know, the Baron was, like, kind of defined already. 
Yeah, he d- yeah, better it was just an unnecessary additional detail that presumably is fleshed out in one of the other prequel novels. Ex- yeah. But, like, didn't need to be there and certainly didn't need to be mentioned here. Anyway, yeah, so successful recovery of his memories. But he somehow also ends up with the voice of Aaliyah in his head, promising to torment him just as he had done to her in Children of Dune. Which is an idea that I like in general, but it also doesn't make a lot of sense. Like, there's no reason for her to be in his head. Mm-hmm. Like, she, he was in her head because he was one of her ancestors. Like, he's her grandfather, essentially. So she had the genetic memories, blah, 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 whatever. She essentially had him in her other memory. The Baron doesn't have other memory. He just has her randomly in his head for no apparent reason. Yeah. I don't really understand why that happened. Maybe it will be explained in the next book, but I am confused by what's happening here. It's an interesting idea, but I don't quite get it. <laughs> yeah, but, like, again, this... And we've seen this, like, a bunch in, like, this book, right? You can have these interesting ideas that are sort of, like, juxtapositions of things you've seen before or, you know, whatever. But you need a way to connect the dots and yeah. explain, like, how you got there, why things are the way they are. You can't just have something happened this would have been so easy to explain with just a oh the like sample wasn't pure there was some other trace amount of cells in it and they couldn't identify what it was and it turns out to leah yeah you could have had an offhanded comment about that way earlier Uh with like oakstall complaining about like oh well like i'm gonna do my best to make this gola but like here's the potential problem yeah and the baron was killed by Aaliyah. Right, the original Baron. Yeah, so, so like, you could have been like, oh, like a drop of her blood got mixed in with his cells, something, something stupid like that. Like, yeah. You could yeah. have come up with some reason. Yeah, totally agree. Um, it, it just, it wouldn't be hard to come up with an explanation that would connect that dot. Mm-hmm. So why didn't you? Instead of just having like, it happened for no reason and it doesn't make any sense. Anyway, back on Slylax, Uxal can tell something is going on when Rebella's ship arrives. And in the turmoil, that ensues he is summoned to the palace which he assumes to be a summons from helica but it's actually by ingva who is using helica's distraction to forcibly bond ukstal and make him loyal to her and to make his value her own so basically she's kind of protecting herself by making it so that ukstal will answer to her and so if they want to continue using ukstal they'll have to keep her around to ensure his loyalty or whatever Although, presumably, they could just kill her, and then he's unbonded, and we'll do whatever we want. So, I don't know that this is actually a very great insurance policy for Ingva. Uxel's castration presents a barrier to Ingva, but apparently not an insurmountable one for an honored matre at Ingva's level. And she carries out the imprinting process despite his vigorous protestations, both at the concept of being bonded in general, and to her specifically. So, this is obviously gross and horrifying, and also entirely within the honored matre's way of doing things it falls within their sphere of depravity yes like this is utterly unsurprising but it's also still even for a character that i mostly despise still uncomfortable to consider happening yeah Uxel sucks but no one deserves that back in caladan crone manages his various space dancer infiltrations from his base there while working on his scola project and sending reports back through marty's cyborg-esque watchers. Eventually, they summon him to commune with Marty and Daniel themselves, who project a vision of themselves driving a mule-drawn cart full of fruit towards a futuristic-looking city. They inform Crone that his plan is now obsolete because they are about to capture the no-ship with the other Fiesa Tatarak without the use of the tachyon net. 
obviously referring to the trap on the planet of the Handlers. They are launching their fleet toward the Old Empire and don't need Crone anymore. Marty offers him an illusory melon before they vanish, having led almost to his death off a ledge following them in their illusion, and it's not clear if this was intentional or just something that happened by accident. Regardless, Crone resolves that he certainly isn't done with his plans, whatever the old couple think. Of course, we know that after this scene takes place, obviously, they fail to capture the no-ship and have to come back to Crone and be like, actually keep working on this project. <laughs> we don't actually see that scene. We see this scene where they're just like, thanks for all your hard work, but we don't need you anymore, bye. But, but obviously this turns out to have been a bit of a premature uh, contact because they fail to capture the no-ship and are going to need Paolo anyway. Back on Tleilax, a disgusted Uxal can hardly focus, staggering back to his labs to find them half-destroyed, so he leaves Tilwith locked away, hoping he can buy passage for himself and Tilwith on board the Highliner, which he can see above, under Edric's protection, promising to make Edric more spice. He is distracted by Ingva summoning him to defend her in battle, and he's helpless to disobey, but he isn't much use in the fight, which is disrupted by an honored Matre announcing that Helica had been a face dancer. Which shocks Uxdal, although it does explain why the Madres have been working with Crone. Ingva demands that he help her as she lies injured, and he manages to help her by ending her suffering and freeing himself. So, as much as I dislike Uxdal, Ingva also sucked, so it was kind of yeah. nice to see that. He kind of gets, like, immediate retribution on her. <laughs> Uxdal sees small guild ships landing nearby and tries to head back towards the laboratory so that they can rescue him and Tilwith, but he can't find a way through the fighting, so he decides he will have to hide and wait it out. He plans to demand sanctuary with the Slig Farmer that we met earlier in the book, but he sees the Valkyries searching, and he hides beneath a shed in one of the Slig pens to avoid them finding him. The Slig Farmer coldly throws body parts into the pen that Uxdal is in, getting blood on him, and then lets the Sligs into the pen, where they devour a trapped Uxdal alive. Fun. Yeah. He then slaughters his best Slig and summons surviving friends from nearby villages for a feast, happy to be free from both the Masters and the Matres, so... That was kind of funny. Because <laughs> Uxal was kind of a dick to him in the beginning of the book. Clearly considers himself above this poor lowly slig farmer. The slig farmer comments that like, look, like, the Matres suck, but we were already subjugated by the masters. And ultimately, when the new sisterhood comes and just defeats all the Matres, this guy manages to, I guess, avoid the destruction of Bandalong and throws a fucking party. <laughs> with freshly Uxdal-fed slig flesh. <laughs> Fortunately for Tilwith, he does not share the same fate and has better luck getting out. He doesn't want to be captured by either Matres or Valkyries, and he makes the same calculus as Uxdal had, believing that the guild will want him because he can potentially develop a way to make spice. He finds a shuttle and a friendly mechanic who lets him take it, although possibly believing that he's just a child and not actually a Gola of a Tilaxu master. Tilith takes the ship up to the Highliner and bargains his knowledge for Sanctuary. However, he has a plan to make spice not from axolotl tanks, but somehow from advanced sandworms, whatever that means. The Awoken Baron Harkonnen spends at least some of his time torturing and assaulting young teenage boys, because of course, but he is haunted by the voice of Aaliyah inside his head. Unable to understand how she could possibly be there, I share that lack of understanding, and considering killing himself to be rid of her. However, to the Baron's pleasure, Crone finally decides it is time to pass off the six or seven-year-old Paolo to him to continue raising and teaching, which, despite deeply unhelpfully vague instructions from Crone, the Baron is quite excited about, taking his revenge on the Atreides, although Aaliyah continues to torture him from within his own brain. And that's everything. 
That is everything that happens in this book. So um, it's not super standalone, I think. I think it's very clear that this is half of a larger story. Yeah, it is. And I think originally the plan was that they were going to write one single book, but they felt like they needed more space to kind of write everything out they wanted to write out. So it ended up becoming two books. So we're sort of like reviewing this as Dune 7 anyway. So I think what we'll do here, because it's, it's like the end of one book, right? It's basically end of part one of Dune 7. So we're not going to do like a full review right now. We will do a full review when we finish Sandworms, but we're kind of considering them a collective. So we'll basically like consider this an independent book that we'll like talk about what we liked and didn't like about and then give it a rating. And then next episode, we'll just move on to the next one. And we do have plans to you know, basically, like, review Dune 7 as a whole, and then we want to do a retrospective on everything. Mm -hmm. But for the sake of this piece, we'll just, you know, kind of talk about, consider this like a checkpoint, like the halfway point through Dune 7, how we're feeling about it, and since it is an independently published book, we'll rate that independently. Yeah. So do you want to go first, or do you want me to go first? Why don't you go first? I've been doing a lot of the talking so far, yeah. so I'll take a break. <laughs> sure, yeah, so... With this book, um, I did say in the chapter host, it might have been the wrap-up, I don't remember, I did mention that originally when I went through these, I liked Hunters better than Chapter House. I don't have the same opinion <laughs> that I had with my first read-through. So let me just start with that. Um, I was really grasping to find things that were good about this book. Um, it was very difficult. One thing that is kind of like a through line in this book and the next one a plot that I did enjoy reading about to a degree was all the Benny Gesserit Honored Matre stuff that goes on with Mirbella and that whole group. Mm -hmm. I thought that was at least an interesting concept, even if the execution was poor in some areas. I think the the concept of them dealing with like the internal politics of trying to merge those two groups and the struggles that they had there, you know, whether it's sort of at like more of a macro level, just talking about you know, the logistics of it and having like pockets of rebels that you have to snuff out and things like that, right? Or the more personal level where you have like Belanda, mm -hmm. right? And um, Doria and them dealing with their issues, even if it didn't resolve in a way that we liked or found interesting at all. Um, <laughs> it was still like an interesting exploration of that conflict and how that unfolded. And I do kind of like that. I also thought that and this kind of goes hand in hand with that, but in some other areas, I did think there was some decent world building. I think there was some world building that was terrible, but I think <laughs> there was some world building that was interesting, especially around, um, like, Uxtal as a character. Mm -hmm. I thought he was a really interesting character. The perspective was interesting, basically being, like, a slave to the honored matres and having to sort of, like, follow them and, and, and do what they said. It gave us a lens into the honored matres we never really had before, mm -hmm. which I thought was interesting. Even if one of them turned out to be a face dancer. Right. Uh, what they were doing with the the masters and, like, sperm extracting them, as, like, gross and weird as that was, it was an interesting juxtaposition on how they treated females. So mm -hmm. that was interesting. I, I thought there was a lot of stuff there. I, I did also find interesting, like, the, you know, the Benny Jesserit slash Arnold Matre group going to um, Riches, and that was, like, an interesting world-building piece there, introducing that as, like, sort of an alternate to Ix. Mm -hmm. um, so that was all stuff that I found to be generally interesting. Um, so the bad, I, there's a lot here. Um, I'm going to try to break it down, like, as slim as I can. The reliance on the prequels was something that we've talked about throughout these episodes on Hunters, and it's it's just so blatant and 
Like, we've said this before, if you needed to write a bunch of prequels in order to write the end of the series, you shouldn't have written the end of the series. Yeah. Like, it's just, it's a bit egregious, and we went into this with the goal of we are only going to read Frank Herbert's books and the supposed ending of the series, right? We're not going to go and we're not going to read other things that are sort of more peripheral to that because to be a full series arc, it should stand on its own and yeah. you shouldn't need any of those other pieces. It's like it's like saying like, oh, you can't watch Star Wars episodes, you know, one through three unless you've like read a couple books and like watched like a, a series played or like KOTOR. played KOTOR or like, yeah, like. Well, so like I'd be equally annoyed if Frank Herbert himself had pulled something like this. Like he'd been mm -hmm. like, oh, I'm not going to write this last book. I'm going to write like six other books and then come back and you need to have read those six other books to read this. Yeah. Like it'd be like if George R. R. Martin finally gets around to writing the end of A Song of Ice and Fire and all of the critical plot elements related to the ending and the motivations of the others is all revealed in Fire and Blood. And you had to have read those mm -hmm. to read the end of the, the series. That would be shitty too. As it is, those those are written as kind of like a providing like additional color and like interesting stuff about history of other things. They're not really revealing critical plot details that are needed to understand the motivations or end point of the main series. Yeah, I, I think I think the most egregious example of that, which some people might be familiar with, is Star Wars Episode Nine, Rise of Skywalker. You know the whole like Palpatine returned thing, right? So the whole thing with Palpatine coming back and like basically like announcing to the galaxy he had returned, there was actually a transmission of that, and it was released in Fortnite, the video game. Mm -hmm. They had like an event. Where, like, I, I don't know exactly how it worked, but, like, if you started a game, I guess, like, you got to hear, like, Palpatine's speech about him returning. Which they did not include in the movie, but they included <laughs> in Fortnite. Yeah, I remember so, that was really dumb. It, it reminds me of that. Like, the thing is, if you're going to have a full series arc, right, where you kind of have, like, the main series, that needs to stand on its own without mm -hmm. any support from external pieces. Those external pieces should always be optional reading. And yeah. I think, you know, inserting things like, the knife that Paul's assassination attempt you know, was used in Paul's assassination attempt or whatever that was, like, written in one of the prequels. Like, come on. Like, you could have found a different place to get DNA that didn't basically say, like, here's an advertisement for our book, That's please go thing. read it. It feels like product placement. Yeah. So it's the kind of thing where I'm not going to say that this was all just done in order to promote their own brand, but, like, I certainly understand why people are suspicious about this. It's very convenient that these characters including the antagonists of these last two books, the, like, prime big bad guys, mm -hmm. appear in and are explored in a series of prequels all written before this novel. It goes far beyond Easter eggs. Like, it'd be one thing if there was, like, an offhanded reference that, like, someone being like, oh, I read the prequels. Like, I get that. Like, it's a cool reference. Mm -hmm. This is, like, integral plot elements. And if this was the plan all along, like, if this was all according to what Frank wanted, there was insufficient groundwork done in previous novels and frank was deliberately misleading at the end of chapter house yeah because i genuinely think this conflicts entirely with the end of chapter house like there's a whole omnius and erasmus thing makes no sense in the context of that last chapter mm. like I, I think it's frankly egregious yeah like, that, it, is, so... it is either like the most deliberate attempt to mislead or they just were like, hmm, well, that chapter is inconvenient. We'll just pretend it didn't happen. Yeah, so let's let's dive into that next because I, I think we talked enough about, like, the reliance on the prequels. Um, and the next bullet point I had was Omnius Erasmus, which 
yeah, it was it was pretty blatant that they were being set up to be face dancers. Yes. In the last chapter of Chapter House. And I, I, I know I played a little devil's advocate while we were reading through this because I wanted to at least try to provide a counterpoint to that. Um, but there isn't really much of a counterpoint to that. Like, you could say, like, yeah, retcon it a little bit and say that they were, like, robots pretending to be face dancers. But, like, that that's just, like, too many levels within levels that, that just don't line up appropriately. I mean, as we discussed in that chapter, it is a chapter that in- takes place entirely between Marty and Daniel by themselves with no one else observing. So there's no reason for them to not be direct about what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. And they would have to be like actively speaking in code or like to, it, with an attempt to fool someone for that conversation to make any sense. Yeah. Cause like, there's like several points. There's like, first they reference that, they have encountered Tlaxu masters before who always whistle at the old couple, which annoys them, indicating that the masters believe them to be face dancers. Yeah. This could maybe just be because Erasmus or whatever can change form, but I also think that a master would be able to tell the difference between a face dancer and a robot or a hologram or whatever. Mm-hmm. Second of all, Daniel says that he doesn't like mistreating the masters to disabuse them of the notion that they can control them. And the way the conversation is framed heavily implies that the masters are the creators of Marty and Daniel. Daniel's like, I am uncomfortable mistreating my creator, essentially. Mm-hmm. Like, that is the way it is framed. And the, the conversation doesn't make sense if that's not true. If he's not a creation of the masters, or thus a face dancer. And then, the, in particular, this exchange makes no sense if Marty and Daniel are not face dancers. And even less than no sense if they're actually ancient robots from the Butlerian Jihad. Daniel says, they have such a hard time accepting that face dancers can be independent of them. And then Marty says, I don't see why. It's a natural consequence. They gave us the power to absorb the memories and experiences of other people. Gather enough of those and, Daniel says, it's personas we take, Marty. And Marty says, whatever. The master should have known we would gather enough of them one day to make our own decisions about our own future. That doesn't make any sense Mm -hmm. from the context of what their actual identities are in this book. That yeah. only makes sense if they are face dancers who were created by the masters who gathered enough personas to become their own independent people and rebelled and took their own power. Mm-hmm. Which is a much more interesting plot than this, oh, they were actually the exact same evil thinking machines from the Butlerian Jihad who somehow survived all this time. Yeah. That's just dumb. I'm sorry. That is a dumb plot point. If mm-hmm. that had been Frank Herbert's intent, I would think it was equally dumb. Yeah. But I hate it. Mm-hmm. And it's even worse because there is the tantalizing, like, that chapter made it seem like it was going to be so much cooler. Mm-hmm. And then they were like, mm, hmm, well, interesting idea, but no, we're going to do this other worse thing. With characters that we made up and wrote yeah. a whole bunch of prequels about, which is awfully suspect. Yeah, speaking of characters that were made up, is now a good time to talk about the Oracle of Time? Oh my god, yeah, let's do that. So the Oracle real name Norma Senba is briefly the briefest of mentions uh in god emperor where leto refers to her as the woman who designed the first guild ship although her lover had taken credit for it that is the only mention of this person that ever existed Mm -hmm. in any of the previous books as far as i can tell and serena butler certainly was never mentioned as a character or a thing or anything nor was any other aspect of the jihad beyond that like it happened (laughs) So remember when I mentioned taking, like, a random Star Wars Cantina character and writing yes. a whole, like, backstory yes. about them? <laughs> this is exactly what I was talking about. <laughs> yes. 
Like, I don't understand. Somehow this lady who designed the first guild ships has survived all of this time because she has, like, I don't know, transcended humanity and become, like, an entirely self-sufficient navigator, but, like, more powerful than that. I, I don't get it. I also don't know why yeah. why she's called the Oracle of Time. I guess she's prescient for some reason. She's working against the thinking machines. But if she's prescient, is, is she, like, a Kvisas Hatterak? Or, like... I don't know. Like, because there's, like, a cost to using prescience, right? So... What are her powers? Yeah. Why is she still alive? Like, I... How, how is she able to, like, commune with the navigators? Like, none of this makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I don't get it, and frankly, I hate it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, did, didn't like that. So... Yeah. Oh, well. I don't know. That's um, so next next thing I had on my list um, <laughs> is literally what I wrote. Too many damn golas. Yeah. The, and this, uh, in the defense of Brian Herbert and Kevin J. Anderson, this it was, was set up. absolutely set up because it, well, some of it was set up. But the concept of the null entropy tube and Sightail having the cells and then, and, and, you know, saying like, oh, well, you could create someone from any of these list of people. Here are the people, whatever, mm-hmm. right? Frank set that up. I think there was a little overindulgence with its usage and I would have been a lot more comfortable with it. And I've, I said this like two or three times, but like, don't just pick characters we know, pick characters we don't know. And when I say pick characters we don't know, I don't mean characters you conveniently had in your prequels yeah. that happen to show up here um, that nobody really cares about if, unless you've read the prequels. So like gross overuse of that. I do think there were some interesting tidbits there on it. Like, you know, interesting things to think about, like, oh, you bring in the children as golas and then their parents and the parents are younger than the children. Like that's an interesting concept, mm-hmm. right? And there's some intriguing pieces there. But and I like the idea of some of the golas maybe not wanting to be the people that they were in their previous mm-hmm. lives. Yeah, like, like Yue was an interesting example of I that. I still think it was entirely dumb to bring him back at all, but since he was yeah. there, I liked that exploration of well, I am one of humanity's most hated figures. But but like to your point, like why do it in the first place? Like, yeah. the, the end point is you get that interesting character exploration, but, like, you need something legitimate to lead into that. It shouldn't be, like, just, you know, you do it for reasons, and then you can explore that. Like, the reasons need to be solid. Like, you need something yeah. concrete there you can rely on. Same thing with Cheney. Like, what's the point of bringing Cheney back? Just to keep Paul company? Like, that... Well, I think they... they that one was a little bit more explicit of, like, they brought her back as a means to control Paul. Yeah, so I guess. So that one I actually had probably the least problem with as justification. And I guess if you juxtapose that with the Paolo situation, you can maybe, like, show a situation where Paul didn't have a companion. Plus, I mean, you do have the Baron there, so that's a little yeah. bit of a different element. But. but, but yeah, in general, it's just, like... Yeah, I don't hate with this the idea of these like controversial figures from ancient history wrestling with wanting to or not wanting to be the people that they were. But it just the justification that these ancient people, literally at this point ancient people, have any kind of deeply use, useful perspective for the current struggle is just like a flimsy excuse anyway. And it's, like, kind of cringy to be like, hey, let's just, like, resurrect half the cast of the first three novels. Look at all, all these people that you liked from those books. Look, they're back. It's just very self-referential and, like, self-congratulatory. But there just could have been a better reason for it if you really wanted to go for it. Like, they needed genetic diversity to establish new colonies. And they selected people who are well understood enough psychologically that they could reasonably successfully awaken their memories. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, these people are so well studied that we know 
how we could bring back their memories. Whereas like some other less well-known figures, they maybe wouldn't have the understanding to do that. Yeah. I don't know. Something like that. But it was just, yeah, unfortunate. Or maybe even more interestingly, they like are like, we need to bring, we need genetic diversity so that we're not, you know, inbreeding everyone together and we need to establish new colonies. We'll pick people who we understand well enough that we won't accidentally trigger their memories because they don't want that to happen, but it happens anyway. Or, you know, there were routes that could have been taken other than like, let's bring back Wellington fucking UA and Stilgar. No offense to Stilgar, but like, what is he going to contribute to the fight against the other enemy? Yeah. He does not have a Fremen army to lead a jihad. Yeah. What's he going to do? Yep. All fair points. (laughs) All fair points. It was just, it was like overindulging on fan service that like the fans didn't really ask for, I think. I feel like, I mean, and you know, we haven't gotten to the next book yet, but when I was reading this, looking at the people who were brought back, or, or some of them at least, I feel like it was people that, in at least some cases, are being brought back to, like, maybe give them a redemption or a better ending. Like, particularly, um, well, I mean, Paul and Chaney did not get great endings, right? Mm-hmm. Um, oh, Jessica, okay, fine. Thufir didn't get a great ending. Um, well, he got a great ending in the 1984 film where he got to milk a cat forever. <laughs> that was that was a pretty good ending. Was that a good ending? Was that a good ending? <laughs> You know, he, he, like, ended up dying right as Paul had his victory at the end of the first novel. Um, Liette died out in the desert, got eaten by a sandworm. You know, all of this stuff. Wellington had to, was essentially forced by the torture of his wife to betray Leto, the Duke, and is hated by history as a result, or at least some t- parts of history. Like, it feels like maybe they're being brought back to, like, give them a second chance in some ways, which is, like, not maybe the best justification of bringing them back. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We'll see how that pans out, but I, I was kind of getting that suspicion when looking at some of the people. And if you, like, the, the other back. thing, too, is, like, it's so central. Like, if you took away all the Gola concepts, like, the book just falls apart, right? There isn't enough meat there to really do anything. I don't know. I mean, it causes some conflict on the no-ship, but there's already conflict about what their goals should be, like, to settle somewhere or to keep going or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm trying to think of something critical that the goal is due. At least in kind of book. there. Yeah. Like, th- like they're I supposed honestly to... think you could cut out a lot of that. I yeah. Mean, I, think it, I think it drives a lot of the conflict. Um, oh, also, we need to talk about Leto and the worm within. Oh, yeah, well, th- that whole thing is just Yeah. Well, I, I guess we could talk about it when it happened, but just to talk about it at least at a, you know, high level of it was a stupid concept that didn't make any sense. Yeah. I mean, the idea that they're going to bring back Leto the Tyrant anyway, mm-hmm. like, it's already kind of a little bit beyond belief that they brought back Paul, because... Yeah. The explicit goal of the Sisterhood for the past several millennia has been to avoid creating new Kriya Tataraks. And then they're just like, hmm, well, let's bring back Paul himself. Paul, who himself acknowledged he was worse than Hitler. <laughs> yes. And, like, <laughs> what the fuck? Like, let a jihad, or at least allowed a jihad to happen in his name that killed, like, tens of billions of people. Was it something yeah. like 65 billion people? <sighs> something like that. And it, it, makes you, it makes you think that, like, the writers of... of this book did not like get the point of Paul as a character and that, I mean, you've probably seen the meme a ton of times, right? Of like, these are characters you shouldn't idolize. And it's usually like the Joker and Mm -hmm. like, you know, other characters like that, like Walter White, like people who are just like, 
evil to a degree and you shouldn't worship them as characters because they're just bad people and paul is like kind of another example of that i know he was like he went through a lot of shit i guess but i mean he ultimately didn't he had options to not go down the path that he did and he allowed his own like desire for revenge to be more important than preventing a jihad yeah he's he's just not particularly redeemable like i think he's a tragic figure, mm-hmm. but yeah, he's he's not like I don't know. As much as you might sympathize with how he got to where he did, ultimately the fact remains that he allowed a jihad to be waged in his name mm-hmm. and like ruled an empire. Like he he's not a good guy. Yeah, I, but I feel like the book wants to portray him as one, mm-hmm. like by that he's like by nature a good person, and I think that's you know that's not in conflict with how things turned out. Like good people can be warped by the scenarios of their lives and end up becoming bad people. Mm-hmm. And I think that is, in some ways, the story of the original Dune. But, I don't know. Yeah. But the whole point of, like, they, they're like, oh, well, let's bring this guy back. But, to, but, take, but he didn't... to take that, and then to go a step further and be like, also, let's bring back Leto the Tyrant, who ruled with an iron fist for, like, 3,500 years. Yeah. But the other thing, too, worse than Paul. Is, is, like, Paul didn't really, like... Like, you know, he had that whole preacher arc in Children of Dune, but he didn't, like, die, like, redeeming himself, really. No. Like, he just kind of died, right? And I, I think I think sometimes people look back on that as, like, almost a, like, Darth Vader redemption arc where, like, you know, you, 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 you like, you were a bad guy for a while, but then you kind of, like, turn good in the end and, like, restore something. But, like, he, I mean, the Empire is still there. It's the Things still kind of suck. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he didn't, yeah, I wouldn't call that a redemption arc, certainly. Like, I think it, it tries to, like, sort of be like, oh, well, Paul saw some of what he would need to do for the Golden Path, but, like, chose not to because it was, like, too terrible and Leto was the one brave enough to do it. You can make the argument that he set up Leto to commit to the Golden Path, which ended up leading humanity into a much better situation in the long, long, long term. Allegedly. Like, you can make that argument. We don't but... know what would have happened if the golden path hadn't been put in place and humanity yeah. had just been left to its own devices. Like without mm. the counterfactual, it's hard to say net good or not. We, we, we know that Leto believed it was necessary. Um, yeah, but yeah, I don't know. But yeah, the whole, we're bringing back these golas is just so antithetical to the stated mission of the Bene Gesserit for the past, like several millennia after specifically because of what happened with Paul and Leto. So yeah. Ugh. Anyway, let's let's move yes, on from Golas. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think we've said enough there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, so another thing that I had here, th- there were just too many convenient occurrences mm-hmm. and too many like, well, not I wouldn't say there's too many drop plot points, but there there were like unsatisfactory plot pieces in here. Like you brought up a good one with Belanda, right? Like you have this like character building thing where it seems like it's interesting what's happening with her, and then she just dies, right? Or Doria dies, mm-hmm. and it's just pointless. Yeah, like, Londa dies twice. Yeah, it just it just leads absolutely nowhere into a black hole. Um, yeah, you, you know, you had um, Marbella's daughter at the beginning that mm-hmm. that could have been like done more interestingly, but it just seemed like a way to just kill off a character and make Marbella feel things. Yeah, right. Also, like too many convenient occurrences, just in the sense of like the Bene Gesserit are dealing with this crisis of you know they have these pockets of rebels and then they just snuff them out. Right? And then they move on to the next thing, and they just deal with that. And everything is just conveniently done, and there's no challenge there. Mm-hmm. Right, It's almost like 
if you have a video game you're good at and you just play it on easy and you never increase the difficulty and you just stomp it all the time, like it's, it's going to be boring, right? Yeah, I mean, the only setback like they encounter is when Rechase is blown up. And so mm-hmm. that is like a, a, a huge setback. Yeah, that's a reasonable setback. But everything that Rebella sets out to do essentially in this novel seems to work. Mm-hmm. You don't really feel like anything's a true threat, right? It just, I mean, you know that you have like the the robot people living out there and that they're potentially going to be a problem, but you don't really have any kind of a sense that they're going to be an issue to deal with when the time comes, right? Yeah, I don't know. I guess it's a little bit unclear what their capabilities are. I also don't understand, or, or not, not that I don't understand, but I don't know at the end of this book how much time there is mm-hmm. because... Again, we kind of talked about this at the beginning of this episode, but, like, the distances between, like, where the machines are and the old empire, also, does that even matter with fold space jumping? Like, now that they decided to launch their fleet, can they just, like, pop into existence outside Chapter House and we're all done? Like... I mean, maybe. And if, if so, why haven't you done it already? Yeah, so I, I like, <laughs> that is much one thing I don't really understand about the world that this is in. Um, so, yeah, I don't really understand, not what the stakes are, but what the, like, relative strengths of the two sides are. Mm-hmm. Like... Yeah, that'll be interesting. But yeah, I agree that Marbella didn't really... She she accomplished essentially everything she set out to do in this book until the destruction of the fleet at Rechase. Mm-hmm. All right, do you have anything else you want to gripe about? Yeah, I, I think the last thing that I really have in here is um, that I, I think I think it amplified like the worst of Frank's writing, not mm-hmm. the best of Frank's writing, because I know we have criticisms of Frank Herbert, but there were good things that he did, right? Like, I know the epigraphs kind of got worse as time went on, but in the first book, that he did a good job with them, right? Um, the, the whole character arcs going from, like, book one through the end of God Emperor, like, I, I think generally, like, I know we had issues with Messiah and some of, like, the deus ex machina of the end of it that was, like, yes. pretty poorly explained, but generally speaking, they were interesting characters, they had interesting character arcs, they ended up in interesting places, and by the end of God Emperor, like, you had a pretty contained, I think set of four books that like you know it, it I, I i think you had like an interesting ending of that sort of micro saga within like the greater thing that frank herbert was trying to write um and i do think you know he had interesting plays of philosophy that he threw in there and you know he had an interest in ecology and you could sort of see a lot of that through those books right but there isn't really any of that in here you see more of the the sides of frank herbert's writing that weren't very good being leaned on like, a lot of the depravity of the Arnold Matres that we saw in his later books and, like, the overuse of, like, their sexual abilities and that type of stuff that really, like, took you away from reading the book, really, right? Mm-hmm. At least it did for me in, especially in Chapter House, but also a bit in Heretics, where it just felt like an overused thing. And, yeah. um, you know, I, I know that's a comment that a lot of people have about his writing that near the end it got, like, overly sexual and kind of awkward. Um, <laughs> yeah. Also, like, Prescience, which is something that, Frank Herbert, like, mostly abandoned after God Emperor. Um, well, because the whole point was to make it moot, right? Yeah, and, and like, that kind of makes a comeback here with, like, multiple cases. Like, we talked about the Oracle of Time, and, like, you have, like, the no-ship people trying to bring back a Kvisatz Hatterach or two Kvisatz Hatteraks, and, and, like... Paul has, like, what seems to be a prescient vision of his own death. Yeah, and you have you have Paolo, right? And, like, it's, it's just... It, it's a lot of these things that... I think weakened Frank Herbert's writing and you just have them thrown out here. And then um, the, the other thing too, just like lacks of explanation. Um, that was something that Frank Herbert was notorious for as we discussed, like going through his books, like these things would happen and it just wouldn't be explained. It would just be like, Oh, it just happened. That's just, you know, it is yeah. what it is. 
Um, and I feel like that's like heavily done in these books as well with many of the things we talked about. And um, I think it just, it really takes away from it mm-hmm. for me. Yeah. All right. So do you have some good and bad you want to talk about? Yeah. I don't think I have a lot, a lot of bad that we haven't already covered, but I'll mm-hmm. do that first and maybe end on a more positive note of like things that I liked, I guess. Sure. We can use the sandwich method. <laughs> <laughs> Surround the bad with the good. Yeah. So there were like um, some like things that, I don't really understand in terms of stuff that was established in previous books that's either like directly contradictory or just like I don't understand why people don't know things that they should know. So like a basic thing is that explicitly in Chapter House, it states that Marbella removed the mines from the no ship. It's pretty uncontrovertible. She gives an explicit order to remove the protective mines from the ship. She clearly did that mm-hmm. on purpose. It was her decision and she gave that order. But in this book, it stated that the loyal sisters had never dreamed that Shiana herself and her conservative allies might deactivate those mines. And it's like, okay, well, like, that's literally not what happened. Mm -hmm. So, like, it just seems like a really dumb own goal that wouldn't have been that hard to fact check. Yeah. So it just, I don't know. That was, like, an early sign of, like, hmm, I'm concerned about where this is going. Yeah, and I I think this is just something where, like, that, if, if, if you're extending a series that already has, like, written canon in it, right? Like, there needs to be a step as part of writing that where you fact-check your stuff against the other stuff and make sure that you're not contradicting it, right? Mm-hmm. And, like, I know there's, like, broader things, like the Ormus Erasmus stuff that, you know, is, is more of a blatant case, but, like, even these smaller cases, like, there should have been some sort of a check against these, and I'm not sure why that wasn't done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, I don't understand why no one tries to artificially age up the golas the way hate must have been mm-hmm. later in the book Uxtal seems to do this in like a sloppy and bad fashion but he doesn't entirely know what he's doing so that kind of explains why he doesn't he isn't able to do it well and so the goal and he also doesn't care if the golas survive like he's just making them long enough to get the, the knowledge he needs out of them so like who cares there but Sightail should certainly know how to make the Golas age faster. Mm-hmm. Because he was literally there at the time of Hate's creation. And Duncan should certainly know that it's possible because he was Hate in one of his lifetimes. Yeah. And we've already discussed that there's only a 10-year gap between Duncan's death, or maybe like a 12-year gap between Duncan's death and when Hate must show up. And he's not 12. He's like an adult man. Mm-hmm. But there's never even any reckoning of like, anyone suggesting that they do that like it, if they re- if they wanted to make sure that it didn't happen there could have been the like oh well like we know that there must this must have been possible given all the duncan golas previously blah 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 and Saitel could have been like oh yeah we, we discovered after more time that it makes them unstable or it makes them die earlier like whatever but there's not no one even suggests like hey you know it would be helpful if we got these guys aged up faster and it's just like an annoying thing that's already established as having happened in universe and no one even suggests including characters who should have that knowledge so which is that that kind of annoying thing i don't love that um i also just like and this is related to the identities of erasmus and omnius being characters from the prequels or whatever but because they're characters in the prequels who presumably are explored and fleshed out there i have no understanding of their goals or motivations or what they want or what they're doing or what their history is Mm-hmm. All I get is that they were kind of evil machines. Like, again, are there any other thinking machines, or is it just these two? And this whole machine empire is just these two and a bunch of robots doing their bidding. Why does Omnius want to kill everyone? What was the justification for the old couple disguises? 
like I, I don't entirely hate the idea of bringing back thinking machines into the story at all, but it shouldn't be literally the same ones as in the war from 15,000 years ago, somehow still kicking around. Make it be that the people in the scattering were so desperate to survive these brutal new frontiers that they broke the prohibitions and created their own thinking machines that went rogue. That mm -hmm. would have been an interesting take on things. Yeah. Or have them be from another galactic civilization that won its own version of the Jihad. Like, this all happens in a similar way in some other part of the galaxy, and the machines win. And these guys ally with the face dancers due to their mutual outlook on being the pawns of humanity. Yeah, I, See, I, I came up with these myself. That, I that, thinking yeah. for five minutes, and they're mo more interesting than what we got. I, I, I was just going to say that. like, w When you read a book and you can come up with significantly more interesting endings just on your own, like that points to a serious problem. Like, you can't really... I don't think you can really say that about the other Dune books. I mean, I, I know like Ending of Messiah was like really weird, right? But like I, I can't really think of a different way i well i maybe there's other ways i would end that but like things like um you know the ending of the first book like that was that was an interesting way to end it right it sort of left you on like a melancholy ending where it's like oh what's gonna happen now like this is you know we've been going through this whole story where it's been like we're building up this character and then maybe they're not gonna be a good guy like we thought they might be right and that's mm -hmm. really interesting same thing with god emperor like you have this exploration of this guy who's been you know there for eons and he's like barely a human anymore but he's like making a human connection with someone who he's falling in love with and, and then it leads his downfall yeah and it leads to his downfall and it's just it's done in such a satisfying way i think um compared to like this where there's just i don't know and, and again like we're do we, we like read the first half of yeah. dune 7 so like there's more to come and like maybe maybe it'll end in a more satisfying way than we're expecting right now but it doesn't seem to be leading in that direction based on the you know, based on the, the tidbits we're getting throughout this book and the way things have been laid out and, you know. Well, it, it's just that, you know, we don't know how it ends, but just the fact that these guys are the antagonists. Yeah. It sucks. Mm -hmm. Like, even if it ends in a sort of satisfying way, that doesn't erase the fact that this is a, a bad way. You know, they, they, like, it would, it would be unfortunate anyway if they these guys were the antagonists and there were no prequels and it's just like, oh, huh, I guess these, like, ancient whatever machine from the jihad i would still find that annoying but it's just even more egregious to be like oh well these novel characters that we just happened to write several books about are also the bad guys here go back and read those haha <laughs> if you want to know anything about them beyond the like thin characterization we give them here which completely contradicts what was laid out in the previous book mm -hmm. so i don't know it doesn't make a lot of sense i think there are ways that this could have made more sense um i don't love that like the face dancers are just like they go from being pawns of the Tlaxu to pawns of the machines i think there was potentially you could have had a much more interesting like alliance there of the machines and the face dancers positions as being essentially like slaves of different factions of humanity yeah. and they're like shared like that would have been a motivation that i understood mm -hmm. totally. but as it is i don't know what the machines want and also, like, there's this weird sort of tidbits of Erasmus is sort of, like, working against Omnius in some ways, but not really directly, and for what purposes is not clear. Like, he, he has his own motivations, but, like, how different they are isn't clear, and he's clearly still going along with whatever Omnius is doing. Yeah. And, like, so their relationship I don't get. Like, I that's the thing. I, I just fundamentally don't get them, and not in a oh, it's mysterious and unknowable sort of way, but in a they-didn't-explain-enough kind of way. Mm -hmm. 
So I don't know. I find that very frustrating. Um, I think everything else that I disliked, we mostly covered in, to some degree. So in terms of things that I liked, um, as you said, I generally liked Marbella's arc in terms of the creation of the new sisterhood. I appreciated that it was difficult and took a long time. We talked about how it was a little bit... Convenient. Convenient that, like, every time she, like, uh, you know, tries to deal with it, it works out. But, like, it did take a really long time for her to get everything together. Like, this this goes on for years. There's, like, constant infighting. And there was also some Benny Jesser resistance. It wasn't just the Matres. Um, and the frustration of dealing with the infighting rather than the outside enemy. I really liked that struggle of Marbella being so frustrated. Like, I can't believe I have to spend all my time and resources fighting my own people when there is this bigger threat looming on the horizon. Mm. Like, I really liked that idea. And also the fact that so much of the internal resistance ended up actually being driven by face dancers. I think that was also a cool and interesting reveal. Um, we talked about this when it happened in the previous episode, but the plague planet. Oh, yeah. I think that added a cool kind of element of horror to the enemy, that there's mm -hmm. this... They have ways to just wipe everyone out. They, there is no military resistance that you can put up against a bioweapon like this. Obviously, it also, like, just to comment on that as well, like, the, you, you know, there's this concept in, um, like, horror movies and stuff where, like, you don't show the villain, really, but, like, not showing them is scarier than actually showing them. I mm -hmm. think this is a good example of that, where you have, like, this, you know, people are, you just get a disease and they die. Like, you, yeah. you, don't, you don't see the threat, like, you just, it just comes for you, right? Exactly. Like, obviously few people in this galaxy, civilization, whatever, seem to give a fuck about war crimes or civilian deaths or whatever. I think that's been made clear throughout all of these books. Mm -hmm. But there's something extra terrible about wiping out a planet without even exchanging blows in conventional warfare and of being hit with a weapon you can't possibly fight back against, even as fierce as the Matres are. Like, it doesn't matter. They can be as bloodthirsty as they want when they are hit with a plague, they can't do anything but die horribly. Yeah. So I, I liked that plot element. I wonder how, if that will come into play in the next book, as if those weapons are used against the old empire. I, I generally liked the outlines of the plot. Like, we've talked about elements that I didn't like, particularly the antagonist, some of the Gola stuff, and so on. But generally, I like the setup of the Matres being aggressors who pissed off a force more dangerous than them and have led the enemy back to the old empire. And the enemy being this seemingly insurmountable force that can wipe out entire planets without suffering any apparent losses. I just don't like who the enemy turns out to be. Yeah. But like, I, I like the general structure of that. Being yeah, I agree conflict. with that. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't think it was executed well, but I, I see the bones of what could have been a story I liked a lot more. Yeah, and it was also, like, that's something that was layered into Chapter House, where you were learning that, you know, the Honored Matres had some sort of an enemy, mm -hmm. right? There was some, some, some sort of something that they ran away from, mm -hmm. right? And in Chapter House, it was also, like we were talking about, right, with, like, the the monster that you don't see, but you know is there. That was kind of how it was set up in Chapter House, and, like, like the planet with the plague, like, there were some elements of that, but I think with Omnius and Erasmus being, like, basically getting rid of that concept of there's some master out there, there's some, like, greater threat, even beyond, like, them in Chapter House, right? Like, they were kind of, like, more tools, right? They weren't, you know, um... Who, Marty and Daniel? They, they weren't, like, portrayed as being some sort of a big bad, right? Well, they were kind they were of... They were hinted at maybe being... But they were 
they were not explained much at all. You get this hint at the very end of the book that they are maybe the ones pulling the strings, mm-hmm. but it's kind of just left there. Yeah, and I feel like it was just a little forced the way it was done with us. And we've talked enough about them, I think. <laughs> but yeah, I don't have a problem with them being like the big bads. I just think their identities are stupid. And I think it yeah. would be much more compelling if they were face dancers who had been slaves of the Salaxu and humanity in general and had liberated themselves and were taking revenge. Like, mm-hmm. I just think that's a more interesting motivation than the same bad guys from 15,000 years ago that I don't know anything about. Um, so relatedly, like, cl- clearly I, I have maybe a soft spot for the idea of, like, the liberated slaves turning on their masters mm-hmm. <laughs> as a plot point. But I did like, as we kind of talked about, um, aspects of the origin of the Honored Batres as partially being descended from freed Tlaxu females. Yep. Obviously, given the Tlaxu's horrific misogyny, you can see how such people would be hell-bent on revenge. And I really liked that as being a part of the driving force for the Honored Matres being this, you know, um, misandrist, female supremacy, hell-bent on revenge sort of faction. Mm Mm-hmm. I just, as we discussed, think there's something lost about why the Matres don't know this anymore and why exactly they behave the way they do, ending up in isolated cells that don't communicate but all behave exactly the same way and don't really know why they're running and fighting. I also, this kind of, I guess, goes back to my point about things not lining up from previous books, but I don't understand why they don't have the immunity skills that the Bene Gesserit do. Mm -hmm. They were partially founded by rogue Reverend Mothers, but you don't need to be a Reverend Mother to have bodily control. You know, like Jessica is able to alter her metabolism and whatever well before she ever becomes a reverend mother. That's just like a normal Benny Gesserit thing that I presume is not dependent on spice. So yeah. there's no reason why the Honored Matres shouldn't have that ability. I mean, well, do we know it's not dependent on spice? 100%? I mean, we don't, but it's, you, you don't have to go through the spice agony. Yeah, I, but also like, it's something that could have been lost over the years. Like there, there's a lot of things that you could kind of like explain about why they couldn't do it maybe. But I mean, the explanation isn't fair. really there, but like, yeah, yeah it's I a know, fair just, point it didn't, it didn't seem like you had to be a rapper mother. Like, you know, Jessica's just like an average Benny Jesserit and she's able to do that kind of thing. It just seems like a Benny Jesserit ability, like the weirding way and all that stuff um, without, you don't have to go through the full ascension to, to get that. So I don't know yep. why they didn't have any degree of bodily control beyond their like hyper reflexes. Um, so yeah, there's that. And then uh, the last thing I like is, you know, we talked about having our issues with the way the Gola stuff was done, but I do generally like the idea of struggling with your identity as a Gola expected to become either a hero or a villain of legend. Mm-hmm. And that you maybe don't want that. You want to be your own person and struggling with the weight of expectations of your past upon you. So I think there are some generally good or interesting things in this book. Reading it, I didn't like, I, I wasn't reading it like, oh my god, I hate this, I hate this, I hate this. It would be like, I'd be reading it and being like, oh, like, this is interesting. I, I actually enjoyed reading a lot of the book. It's just there would periodically be these like moments or reveals or things where I would just be like, why? Yeah. Or it would just annoy me. So it was just like, you know, an okay reading experience just punctuated with like intense frustration. And then like, so my overall perception is negative for sure. Mm-hmm. But it's it's not like I thought this was like completely poorly written or like I couldn't get through it, you know? Like I, I read most of it and was like, this is fine. But then there were just enough 
frustration and rage inducing pieces that like overall my opinion is like pretty negative probably more negative than how i felt reading any individual chapter Mm -hmm. if that makes sense yeah no that does make sense because as you said like you you when you read it the first time you didn't like hate it you you actually liked it better than chapter house and i I can see how you got there um i just i think like my, my my frustration at the reveals especially coming off of what i thought it was going to be at the end of chapter house really paints a negative picture for me overall Mm -hmm. all right so i guess it's time for us to rate this Uh, yet again i failed to go back and remember what i rated previous books to compare to yeah because i am the worst but (laughs) yeah well we've been bouncing around ideas anyway but what we want to do in our series retrospective and maybe we'll do like a tier list or something like that just because it's a little bit easier to kind of like when you've read everything but also like as opposed to like ranking books like one to ten like if if you're like tier listing them you don't have to like put one over the other one Mm -hmm. i guess you could give things the same rating but but yeah, I don't know. Uh, we'll, we'll figure out how we want to do that. But regardless, um, so yeah, for this one, um, going one to ten, <laughs> um, I don't know. I'm like stuck between like a four and a five, like it, maybe a three. Yeah. Um, I like I I don't I don't want to. I'll, I'll go in the middle. I'll go four on this one. Um, it just it's definitely worse than all the other ones that we've yeah. read so far. Yeah. I don't I don't think that's you know at least for me that isn't particularly debatable i think maybe the lowest i've given something is a six up to this point maybe that was children i don't remember again like we probably should have gone back and looked at our ratings but whatever every Um, time we do this this. um so yeah um i'm just gonna give it a four like i already explained how i feel about it I, i don't know if there's really much more to put there it's just like all it comes down to is like too much reliance on books that we haven't read and that nobody should really be expected to read yeah right and they should have taken what they were given and more gracefully executed the continuation i think like i would be frustrated with the way this went anyway but i'd be less frustrated if that last chapter of chapter house didn't exist yeah there's enough structure there to know that like there are people who know how to write books right and Mm -hmm. like it's you know as far as like a story like there is a coherent narrative that's told it's just Mm -hmm. not necessarily one that I, I think at least doesn't really resonate well with me as someone who's read the original six, yeah, right? It, exactly. it, those don't really lead into this and it's meant to be a continuation. And I think it doesn't really succeed at being a continuation. So I think that also kind of drags it down. I, I And the four is also like not lower because like it's redeemable at this point. You could go up from here, yeah. right? Um, you could maybe kind of like go back and, you know, take it to another level, a more satisfying place from here, right? I, I I think it's low as it is, though, because, like, there's things that are done that you can't undo at this point, like the Oramus Erasmus stuff, like, you know, undoing Marty and Daniel is what they were. Um, there's, like, too many little retcons like that and too many things that are set up in such a way that, like, you're not really going to be able to fully satisfy what I want you to do with this at this point or what I would hope could be done with this. Yeah. Um, it's kind of a similar way to how I felt after, um, or how we both kind of felt after The Last Jedi yeah. <laughs> Star Wars. Like, you kind of hope, like, oh, like, may- maybe you can, and I know that was a really controversial film because a lot of people liked it, but we both hated it. Um, and you kind of hope that, like, with the next one, maybe you can redeem it. Maybe you can find some way to take it from where it is here to a better place. Um, I don't think that happened. <laughs> and it just did not happen. Um, and you kind of have the same fear going into the next book after this one of yeah. like, can you, can I you think it'll be, it? it'll be an element of like, I don't, yeah, it won't be fully redeemed, but like, are there going to be parts that I like better? Mm-hmm. And do I think that given this starting point, do they end it in a somewhat satisfying way? But yeah, 
that is something we'll explore in our next couple of episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I guess I think my rating would... I was also thinking about a four. Because, yeah, it's... Like, I didn't hate reading it, but the more I think about it, the more frustrated I get. Like, mm-hmm. it, you know, it was, like, punctuated with moments of, like, why are they doing this, or this is stupid. And, like, the ending with the reveal of Marty and Daniel being Omnis and Erasmus, and I was just like, oh, my God, I, I want to throw this across the room. So <laughs> I think I think I went on, like, a 10-minute rant to you at the end of, when I finished this yeah, book. Yeah, yeah, um, I do recall. <laughs> of being just so annoyed. Um, so, yeah, I can't give this more than that. Um this is definitely my least favorite. It has knocked Messiah out of the bottom spot, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, that had one really annoying, like, Deus Ex Machina thing that wasn't explained. Um, particularly the, the whole seeing through baby Leto's eyes thing. But, like, compared to the many problems I had with this book, um, that I have, yeah, less of a problem with Messiah in general. Yep. I st- it's still second to last. Mm-hmm. I still don't like it as much as uh, some of the other books. It's still one of my least favorite of this series, but this definitely uh, takes the bottom spot. Yep. We shall see where Sandworms lands. Oh, we shall. <laughs> I don't have high hopes, but I'm going to try to give it a fair a fair reading. <laughs> yep. So I guess that does it for Hunters. All right. Till next time, I'm Alex. I'm Elaine. Thanks for listening. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Pot Emperor of Dune. If you enjoyed listening to us, we'd appreciate a review on your podcasting host of choice. And be sure to let your friends know about us. You can find us on Twitter under the handle NerdIsayMore, or send us an email at NerdIsayMore at gmail.com. If you'd like to support us further, please go to patreon.com forward slash NerdIsayMore, where you can also get access to exclusive content.